Hello and welcome to Watch It Baptist Church Online. My name's Mike, I'm the pastor at WBC. And we're starting a new series here, uh, looking at the letter uh, called Titus in the New Testament. And we're going to be reading chapter one in a moment, uh, but first I'm going to pray. Father, we trust ourselves to your care in so many ways. Right now, we ask that you would help us understand the intention of your son, Jesus, and that we might be renewed, inspired and challenged, even rebuked by the Holy Spirit, that through looking at this passage that we might get to know better how it is that you call us to live. We thank you for your grace and for your mercy. Amen. Okay, well, the first thing to do is to read this chapter. We are going to read the whole chapter uh, all at one hit. I'm reading it from the NIV uh, and it's on the screen just behind the camera. So if my eyes slightly to one side, that'll be why. Titus chapter one. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. In the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now, at his appointed season, he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own poets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient and unfit for doing anything good. Well, I don't know about you, but that seems fairly hard hitting. We've been to some um, challenging places in the Bible in recent times. We were looking at Leviticus last year and that brought a fair share uh, of um, challenge that required us to be quite rigorous in our thinking. And while this isn't quite on that level, it is uh, it's pretty direct, isn't it? I wanted to start by looking at what I think is a key verse 
for the whole of the letter, which is verse one. Now I will say this, um, Titus, uh, and interestingly, while lots of letters in the New Testament are named for their authors, James and 1 Peter and 2 John or whatever it might be, this letter and one or two others like it are named for the people who received those letters. So this is a letter to Titus, not from Titus, it's from Paul. And Titus was a companion of Paul. We see this not in Acts, where you usually see uh, who is part of Paul's entourage, but in 2 Corinthians, uh, where he's referenced as somebody who is going to Corinth, uh, but also in Galatians uh, and in, I think, 2 Timothy. He's clearly a companion of Paul's, someone who uh, is important, dear to Paul, uh, cherished by him. So it says to Titus in verse 4, my true son in our common faith. And most scholars think that probably Paul was present at the point when Titus first came to know Jesus and so feels a sense of, um, of particular partnership and closeness. So this letter is written to Titus and is written uh, while Titus, it would seem, is on Crete. We're not quite sure when Paul went to Crete, but this appears to be something that did happen. Um, and we know not a whole load more about Titus. Uh, there is a suggestion that he was probably a, a little on the younger side, like Timothy was. But uh, we'll come to that in due course. So in verse one, uh, we have uh, an absolutely crucial um, element of what Paul is trying to say. Now, I, I, I had a little look at some of what commentators say. I'm not entirely 100% sure that this is accurate, but I think that what we're seeing here isn't just a letter from Paul to Titus, but a letter that Paul knows is going to be seen by the churches uh, in Crete. And as such, it, it takes on some of the form of a set of references. So Paul is establishing his own authority and then by, rec by recognising that um, Titus is commissioned by Paul, saying that Titus shares the authority that Paul has. So this is a way of Paul saying, um, I, I am the right person to be giving instructions. I have the right claim. Uh, on authority and so Titus can be trusted as being my representative. Paul does this straight away by saying Paul a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith of God's elect. So he, he immediately is identifying himself as being uh, a servant and as being called by God. Apostle of Jesus Christ, apostle means sent one, so he's, his job is to be sent by Jesus um, with the good news of, uh, of salvation uh, and of being part of the family of God. So he says uh, also, Paul does in this first verse, uh, that he is an apostle, he's been sent to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Now, I think he does two or three really important things there. One is to say that he's audience is those who belong to Jesus or belong to the Father. Uh, that sense of God's elect has had people um, running around in circles for a long time and I'm not going to pretend it's an easy one to tackle but I am confident that being God's elect, elect has a lot to do with um, our choice to follow Jesus and it has a lot to do with how God has called us to be part of his family. But 
Paul finishes that sort of half sentence, and, and Paul is a great one for long sentences, um, by talking about the, the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of truth that leads to godliness. So even in his opening statement about who he is, he's already trying to draw a line between theology and ethics. Let me take a moment to explain what those two terms mean uh, in some helpful ways hopefully helpful ways. Theology uh, is a word that very much carries a, a, a bunk, bunch of academic baggage with it, which leads a lot of people to feel that it isn't for them, um, possibly because they feel it's going to go over their head, uh, possibly because they feel it's just not worth it because our, our connection with Jesus is relational um, and not purely academic. And I understand those things, but I think I think once you sort of reset what theology might mean, it can become a little bit more helpful. So I, I would want to describe theology as faith seeking understanding. It's faith with your brain switched on, if you like. And, and as, as the term theology carries that various kinds of baggage, it is sometimes a bit unhelpful. But I think what Paul is saying here when he talks about knowledge and truth um, and faith he's he's talking about people's understanding of what it means to be rescued by Jesus and then to live as part of Jesus community in that respect I think it's a very helpful thing for Paul to say you know, um, he's, he's a servant of God an apostle a sent one of Jesus to help people's understanding of their faith so that they might seek increasing understanding of their faith but you'll notice at the very end of that of that verse he then he, he has a sort of a, a way um, an exit door if you like so we, we're coming in to theology so that we might exit to godliness that's perhaps a limited value um, illustration because it suggests we might leave theology behind at some point and i don't mean to say that um, so apologies if that's unhelpful uh, but it, it certainly uh, what I want to draw attention to is that Paul here is suggesting that um, furthered faith and, and knowledge is about a, a good theology and that theology is simply about understanding faith. And the only point of having that furthered understanding is to live a godly way. There is no disconnect between theology, that faith seeking understanding, and the ethics, which is the way that we live. Paul intends for all God's people, all those who follow Jesus, to live in godly ways, to make godly choices, to fulfil their calling, the calling that God's placed on their lives. Now, Paul, I'm sure, would have been very careful in conversation to uphold the idea that we are saved simply by trusting in Jesus. We don't have to earn it, and so we don't have to do things in order to either become saved or to maintain our salvation. But he would also say and does say in, in Ephesians 2.10 that um, part, of the, part of the purpose that God has for us in bringing us into his family is that we might live up to his intention for us, his hope for us, his desire for our lives to be fulfilled. Uh, Ephesians 2.10 says um, that God has prepared good things for us to do and that if we follow Jesus, we will do those things and that those things will be us living out the fulfilled, completed life that God has 
intended for us to live. And we know that that's going to be a good thing because Jesus insists to us that God loves to give us good things. So the intention of Paul is to establish his authority, to say that his authority is a lot to do with making sure that theology is good and that the purpose of good theology is to have an effect on the way that we live. He then goes on to talk about how God has always intended um, to bring a fulfilled life. The, the word in verse 2 is eternal life, but eternal has a lot less to do with length of time and a lot more to do with quality. So if you think um, for life to have an eternal quality, it will be a fulfilled um, total life. And that's what God has in mind, Paul says. And then at the appointed season, um, he's brought that message to, to people's attention in various ways, including through the preaching that Paul has done. And then Paul says grace and peace. OK, that brings us to our second section. This is verses five to nine. Paul clearly has an intention here of explaining to Titus what he's supposed to be doing on Crete. Now, that, that I don't think is because Titus wasn't sure. It's probably more likely to be for those other parts of the audience who will see this as a set of references and then who can recognise that Paul's authority is um, being passed to, or has been passed to Titus, to do particular things. Whatever the reason was for it, it would seem that there are loose ends in Crete when it comes to how these churches have been developing. Paul talks about um, elders in every town, which makes it sound very much, I think, as if as if um, there are little churches, little gatherings of disciples in lots of different places. But they're not necessarily particularly well led. Notice, by the way, um, if you would, that there's a reference here to elders but not to deacons. There isn't a sense, I think, in the New Testament of a one-size-fits-all approach to how churches are led and governed. Uh, and we don't do ourselves any favours if we try to find one that we can apply to everywhere. Um, Paul refers to deacons and at different times to elders and refers to overseers too. John refers to overseers without really touching on deacons. Um, and sometimes they're called elders. And in this case, certainly, we have a reference to elders uh, an elder must be blameless in verse 6 um, and then verse 7 sits an overseer manages God's household those those terms have become interchangeable so let's not get bogged down in looking for a single way in which all churches should be governed I don't think the New Testament gives us that but instead let's have a look at um, what elders might be like why they might be like it and what that means for the rest of the church so first of all um, Paul very much feels that every church should have elders, all the churches. He doesn't say how many, whether it's one per church or whether it's a group of three or who knows. He doesn't say, and so I'm not going to worry about that either. Uh, but there should be in every congregation uh, at least somebody who's able to hold that congregation together. What I find fascinating is that this list of, of um, characteristics doesn't start with he must be a good teacher or he must um, be good at explaining theology. Uh, what he does say is the elder must have these characteristics. And we've talked before about 
um, character formation and spiritual formation. And I am absolutely certain of this, that part of what we're called to as disciples of Jesus is to be formed into people. So we're always becoming something more like Jesus. God expressly um, says through Paul in Romans that God's intention is for us to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. We are to become more like Jesus. So our formation, our, our the making of us, is a spiritual process. And so our character reflects that process. This is why if you look at disciples around you and feel that their character is much the same as it was 20, 30, 40 years ago, it's reasonable to talk to them and say, how has the Father or how has Jesus or has the Spirit been working in your life to form you further as a disciple, to spiritually develop you? And if you find that the person you're, you're talking to doesn't want to talk about it or doesn't want to answer that question, that might just mean that you don't know them well enough to ask that kind of question just yet. <laughs> you might not have the trust that means they feel comfortable answering it. Uh, but it might also mean that, that they recognise that there hasn't been that development. Spiritual formation is an ongoing thing for always. And it does us no good uh, if we're not able to look back uh, over the last year, five years, ten years. And if we can't see how God has grown us, if we can't see how we've been involved in, in asking Jesus to, do, to, to form us spiritually, then there is a, a gap there in what we're called to do. Anyway, we've got these few verses and they're looking at characteristics. Now, we can just list them. Let's do that. Uh, verse six says, blameless, faithful to his wife, uh, a man whose children believe. There are different ways of translating that. Um, some of them are to do with children who um, are uh, behaving in a way that means they respect their elders. Uh, not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Um, since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless. And that doesn't mean without sin, but it does mean um, somebody who will own their own mistakes uh, and will um, be somebody who the community around them recognises uh, as being above reproach. Um, somebody who's, yeah, as I said, able to recognise and adapt when they've been called out for something that's, that's wrong, but who's generally considered um, steady and kind and appropriate uh, in company. Not overbearing and overbearing I think here means sort of bossy or bullying perhaps, uh, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness. Um, the original Greek has something about not always having wine alongside, uh, not violence or pursuing uh, dishonest gain. Instead being hospitable, someone who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, which means set apart for God, and disciplined. And then eventually, verse 9, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So there's lots of characteristics of people. Now, I don't think for a second here that what Paul is saying to Titus is everyone who has these characteristics should be an elder. Neither is he saying you will find one of these people with these characteristics. Uh, and, and if you find one, you must put them in a position of eldership. I think what he's saying is people who have these characteristics, they are pursuing Jesus. They are looking to become more like Jesus. They have in them a desire to be fulfilled as the kind of person God has called them to be. 
And because of those intentions, um, because of those intentions, they will be an appropriate person to provide some leadership. Now, even right down at, at, um, uh, at verse nine, it says he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others. Um, it doesn't say that this elder will need to teach. It simply says they must hold firm to good doctrine and encourage others in it. Holding firm enough that they are able to say to those who oppose good doctrine, that's not okay and this is why it's not okay. But you'll notice that those things follow all these character traits. So when Paul is telling Titus what to look out for in leaders in the church, he's saying, look at your congregations in all those towns, look at the people who have those characteristics, because it's that group that will provide you with your leaders. And those leaders won't be good leaders because they have uh, the ability to teach doctrine. They will be good leaders because they hold to those values and because they are able to stand firm in the, um, in the doctrine that they know, that they have been taught. So that presumably means that this, this um, pattern that you find in New Testament or early churches, that you have a lot of itinerant preachers who just are travelling around all the time. In fact, there's a later document called the Didache, um, which is attributed to the apostles, which says that uh, a visiting preacher should be um, paid and fed and uh, provided with accommodation. But if they try to stay more than three days, you can kick them out. Um, so there's, there's this sense that, that, that teaching is going to happen by travelling people, maybe like Titus going round and round Crete, and that your elders don't need to be those. But they do. The more important thing for your elders is the character it's the values that they hold to. It's their intention to be those who will um, sink their roots deeply in a way of being, in a godly way of being. We're right back to verse one again, aren't we? So um, Paul's a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus, to further people's theology, so their faith-seeking understanding, which in turn will lead to godliness. So the intention here is not simply to, to pour out good doctrine, but to encourage people to live in a way that reflects that good doctrine. And then we're on to section three. I would stay longer, but I'm conscious of time. Um, this section in the NIV is, is titled Rebuking Those Who Fail to Do Good. But I think in a way that doesn't do justice to, to the way in which Paul goes about doing this. So Paul we will know particularly from um, Galatians, but elsewhere in his letters as well and, and in Acts, Paul has a real issue with those in the church who are insisting that it has to be um, that the church has to have a Jewish character. So he frequently refers to those of the circumcision group. Um, Titus, we believe to be a Gentile uh, disciple, so he wasn't from Jewish heritage. And there was at some point, we think, some kind of argument about whether or not a particular convert, a uh, Gentile convert, could be commissioned to be a worker on a missionary basis um, if he wasn't circumcised. And, and that argument was important for Paul uh, and he won it. And the church no longer insisted that people had to be circumcised in order, in order to go out and, and share the good news. It is even possible that Titus was that worker. But we're, what we're talking about here is, is Paul's determination, his passion for 
um, a way of being disciples that doesn't depend on a ritual pattern, doesn't depend on a particular heritage. Um, uh, there's something, um, oh, where is it? I forget. But there's something that I think Paul writes about not getting sucked into arguing over genealogies. So the, the, her the Jewish heritage, he says, that's not helpful. Don't get any, don't go anywhere near it. Um, but instead, what he does in this passage is say, um, there are way too many people who will distract from good doctrine. And they'll distract from it for all kinds of reasons. And um, people need to be aware that this is happening and you need to do things to counter it. That makes, doesn't it, that need for elders who are going to be holding firmly to their doctrine. It shows why that's so important. They need to be able to say, I, I understand, I know why I understand, so I'm not going to get knocked off course easily. And I'm going to be able to, by doing so, protect those um, around me who I'm, um, who I have some responsibility for. Uh, and then, and then Paul does this little thing because he's talking about Crete. He does this little thing, which I, I, I'm not quite sure I've landed exactly why he does it, but I want to present you with a couple of possibilities. This is where he's talking about what people in Crete are like. Um, so I'm going to uh, take a look at verse 12. One of Crete's own prophets has said. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the face and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. Now, you could say, um, and I've, I've seen this expressed in some commentaries, that Paul must have had an experience on Crete of Cretan people being rubbish and horrible and brutish and lazy, <laughs> all those other things. Now, it, it may be that he did. And it may be that his experience of people on Crete was, was very poor. But I just wonder whether instead he's playing on a national stereotype. And I'm not sure how much they get told anymore, but when I was growing up, there were a lot of Englishmen, Irishmen and Scotsmen jokes. And most of them really f um, pivoted the, the comedy around Irish people being stupid. Now that's not fair because Irish people aren't all stupid, but there was a national stereotype and you could tell a joke or a story and have it be meaningful or funny by playing to that stereotype even though it wasn't true similarly you might say that you know all scottish people are, are mean with their money we know it's not true but there is a national stereotype and it gets played on and i wonder whether this is what paul is doing so he says uh, one of crete's own prophets so cretan people were very keen on a Prophet and poets called Epimenides, Epimenides, something like that. Um, he's the same guy who wrote um, "In Him We Live and Move and Have Our Being," which Paul quotes in Acts. Uh, it's the same poem as, as from this. Um, and Crete were Cretan, Cretan people were very fond of this poet and believed he was kind of one of theirs. Um, and he had written, "Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons." So there's an established stereotype. And Paul was possibly having a little uh, little dig in the ribs at Cretan people and saying, you know, don't, don't mess around. Don't just play to the stereotype. You can do differently here. You can be those who take their faith and have it transformed into godly ethics, godly ways of living. But in order to do that, you're going to need to, to show, that, demonstrate that you're not 
stereotypes, stereotypically Cretan people, you need to be um, different from that. Um, and then, obviously, by, by playing that stereotype, empowers Titus to speak firmly, to rebuke Cretan uh, disciples where they need rebuking, to put them on a sound fitting in terms of their doctrine. He does, I think, even if that is a bit tongue-in-cheek, which I think it might be, um, he does then push on and is a little bit firm then again. He says, um, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths. Again, there's that sense that, that Paul doesn't want people to be sidelined by Jewish assumption or um, culturally Jewish teaching. Uh, or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. There is a, a sense of, of Paul trying to tackle um, hypocrisy, I think, here. Uh, people who will claim to know Jesus in one breath and in the other, you know, contribute nothing to the community of faith by being lazy um, or to, to be brutish, not to, not to demonstrate that kind of kindness. Notice that earlier in his um, talk about characteristics, he talks about... Um, Elders not being overbearing uh, or violent. That seems to sort of tie in with this evil brute concept. So I think what Paul is doing here is saying um, to Titus, you have, I give you authority to really be very firm and, and to make clear what good doctrine is. So let's take a look at this uh, just as we come to a conclusion uh, to this verse 15, which I think is important. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. I think uh, there are a couple of things I want to point out here. One is that um, in no way is Paul saying that if you, are, um, if you are made righteous by Jesus, that you can do what you like. I think he's very clear elsewhere that that isn't the case. But I think what he is saying is that um, if your definition of what's pure and isn't is based on some kind of ritualistic pattern or, um, uh, well, he, you know, he's, he's drawing, I think, on this um, conflict with, with Jewish uh, overtones. So he says, doesn't he, that, that um, the circumcision group in verse 10 uh, are to be, are considered rebellious. And later on, he says that it's in verse 14, it's important not to pay attention to Jewish myths. And I think that gives a sense that there is a, a tendency uh, in those churches in Crete um, to be sidetracked by a way of doing things that's largely ritual or ceremonial. Uh, and that people were pointing at each other and saying that they weren't up to scratch if they didn't do the right ritual things. And I would suggest that what Paul is saying here is not um, you can do what you like if you're uh, considered righteous by Jesus, but that your righteousness is to do with the purity of your heart, not to do with what rituals you're completing or whether something from the outside is making a difference. We've said before, haven't we, that Jesus spent a lot of time and shared a lot of space with some very uh, richly impure people and it didn't make him impure. I suspect that Paul is grasping at something similar here to say to those who are following Jesus, those who are disciples, that you are able to maintain good character, you are able to hold fast to good doctrine, 
Um, and that doesn't mean that, that you need to follow a particular external pattern in order to do that. Um, and indeed that there are those who by their behaviour, verse 16, deny God even though they claim to know him. It, you might say it's a little bit sharp then for Paul to say these people are detestable, disobedient and unfit for doing anything good. But in the context of somebody who's just been using national stereotypes to make a point, you can perhaps see that he really wants to, to push sharply at this and also wants to empower Titus. So having said all of those things, we do need to look at the so what question. As always with preaching, um, we can end up feeling that we've got a better understanding of, of what's being said in a particular passage or, or chapter. Um, but actually, if that doesn't change anything for us or challenge us in any way, all we've done is accumulate knowledge. And that by itself is of very little value. Jesus himself in John's Gospel says to the Pharisees, you study the scriptures because you believe in them you have eternal life. But actually, they refer to me and it's in me that you have eternal life. We need to make sure that we don't ever substitute a growing knowledge of the Bible for a meaningful connection with Jesus uh, supported by the church around us, the congregation around us, the, the fellow disciples who are walking this pilgrimage with us. So we have to answer this so what question. And I think probably the thing I'd want you to take away is this. Um, it's ethics. So in verse one, Paul says, faith of God's elect and knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. So Paul's understanding of good doctrine, of good understanding of faith, is that it is something which prompts a way of living. The second section here, when Paul's talking about the characteristics of elders, I am aware that all those references are male, and no, I don't think that particularly needs to be hung on to. Paul's um, references to women in, in various different roles, teaching doctrine and being deacons, I think, means that we haven't got a place undue emphasis on this but this middle section about about elders tells us that character more than good theology is key and that is something that that Jesus is looking for in his community that doctrine is not in any way unimportant but that character is a priority and thirdly um, that to be faithful to Jesus and to the community of disciples around you um, is to make choices, to come away from ways of living that are harmful for the community around you, um, to come away from ways of living that prioritise ritual over character and spiritual development and to make that development uh, the thing that matters most, to live in a way that reflects the priorities and characteristics of Jesus himself not to expect those characteristics to be just something for leaders to aspire to, but to be a community of disciples where everybody is aspiring to those characteristics and asking God to help them get closer to those characteristics. The Spirit might transform us to become more like Jesus in the way God intends. And with all that in mind, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the ways in which Paul taught Titus and taught those people on Crete about how to be faithful. We recognise that we sometimes have a tendency to look for our leaders to have characteristics that we're not pursuing for ourselves. And we ask that you would prompt us, that you'd stimulate and inspire us to grow in our character in a way that reflects 
Jesus' way of living. Would you give us courage to change who we are in a way that reflects Jesus' priorities? Would you help us to be the kind of people that our communities around us can look to and know that we have strong, sound character? Would you help us not to be distracted by things that don't take us closer to you, but only focus on those things that make us fulfilled as your people? Amen. Okay, so we're doing three questions at the end of each session. This time round, question one is this. What are you doing, or who are you talking to, to grow your knowledge, to understand your theology better? How are you nurturing the doctrine that you understand? Remember that theology is faith seeking understanding so if we're going to have good theology it's always going to be seeking better understanding there are things that you can do people you can talk to courses you can go on indeed uh, southwest Baptist association has um, a course on reading and understanding the old testament uh, that would be a, a brilliant place um, to start or to continue your studies um, so what are you doing to grow that doctrine who are you talking to and who are you asking for help Question two is about character. Who knows you well enough to see uh, how your character has changed? Who can you go to and say, how am I different now from how I was a year ago or, or three or five years ago? And then once you've had that conversation, um, to follow it up by thinking, well, where do, I, where do I go next with this? How do I grow, how do I, how do I develop spiritually and in character terms next? What's my next step? How do I want to grow in terms of those things listed maybe in, um, in the middle section? So verses five to nine. What is it that you want in character terms for yourself? And it's okay to want something for yourself because what you're wanting is taking you closer to Jesus. Question three is this. Do you feel equipped to challenge other people's doctrine? I don't mean to bully them into sharing yours or to be bossy and saying that they have to think a certain way. But do you feel you could say to somebody, I, I think I'd want to ask questions about that way of thinking? Do you feel equipped for that? And if you don't, what's going to help you to feel more equipped? It's really a question that is prompting you to take ownership of your own development. If you're going to be somebody, and I hope you would want to be, somebody who can help others shape their growth in Jesus, then our, our sense of confidence, our sense of certainty in how we and how well we know our Bibles, how much we read them and, and who we who we grow with, who we're learning alongside, that those are important things. So let's just uh, let's reflect on that and see how we can take that forward too.